0: you're tuned in to the Project Upland podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 54. The podcast is brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the premier rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. They certainly shine in the fall, but they are a year-round facility. I encourage you to go to pineridgegrousecamp.com to learn more about all the stuff they have going on, including things this spring Coming up are the Upland Bird Training Camp, also the annual Woodcock Banding Clinic. Lots of fun stuff. It's a great place, great people. you got to get up to Pine Ridge Grouse Camp one of these days. Check them out at PineRidgeGrouseCamp.com. And by Dogtra Collars. Dogtra offers a full lineup of dog training products, specifically collars, including the 2700 t This is a fully capable electronic training collar. It's got simulation, vibration, everything you need train your dog, including a fully capable three mode beeper collar to serve you out in the field on your hunting trips. Dogtra 2700 TNB tracking and training collar. Find out more about it at dogtra.com. And by Yukonuba premium performance dog food. Yukonuba premium performance dog food provides your bird dog with hundred percent complete and balanced nutrition with no fillers, and the highest levels of protein and fat to promote lean, muscle, and sustained energy for peak performance in your bird dog. Find out more about Yukonuba premium performance dog food at yukonuba.com, And by Gordy & Sons Outfitters, the finest store for hunting and fishing clothing, sporting art, fine jewelry, and travel gear. At Gordy and Sons Outfitters, they have what you need to get you to where you are going. Firearms, gear, apparel, travel destinations, guides. There's a lot of stuff to check out at Gordy and Sons Outfitters. Head over to gordyandsons.com to see everything they have to offer. And finally, by Dakota 283, probably best known for their lineup of super strong dog kennels. But they've also got some other stuff there, like the Dine & Dash or Dash 3.5 and Dash 5.0. These are food and water storage containers, convenience and efficiency, when you're traveling with your bird dogs, head over to dakota283.com. If you purchase a kennel and use the promo code NORTHWOODS50DD, you're going to get yourself 50% off one of the DASH products. Again, that's purchasing a kennel over at dakota283.com. Use the promo code NORTHWOODS50DD. You're going to get 50% off one of their DASH products. dakota283.com. All right. This week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway is Wesley Bickler. Wesley shared a recent episode of our podcast on Facebook. Thank you, Wesley. Project Upland t-shirt coming your way. You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway. All you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show by doing any one of these things. Leave us a rating, leave the podcast a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast post, or send us some feedback or a future guest suggestion love to hear from the listeners send me an email at nick.larson@northwoodscollective.com. at northwoodscollective.com all right quick one today we're going to jump into the interview very soon but i got lots of stuff to do to get ready to leave for pheasant fest tomorrow i can't wait if you're listening to this pheasant fest is probably going on starting today and going through the rest of the weekend so if you're in the area schaumburg illinois stop on by project Upland will be at booth 118 love to see you there my guests on today's show, that's right, I said guests, that is plural. My guests today are Michael Hook and Mark Coleman. These are a couple of South Carolina Upland bird hunters. Michael Hook is the small game program leader for the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. Mark Coleman is a friend of his, and they are both volunteers for the South Carolina Bob White Initiative. The South Carolina Bob White Initiative is a collective There's a lot of different organizations involved. We talk about many of them today. I will have a link to the website where you can learn more about it. But ultimately, the South Carolina Bobwhite Initiative is a statewide effort established in 2015 to restore Bobwhite populations to early 1980s level. Michael and Mark and myself talk about the history of Bobwhite quail hunting in South Carolina. We talk about the South Carolina Bobwhite Initiative, what they've done, what they're doing, and what they plan to do in the future. It was a very interesting conversation, and I very much enjoyed talking to Michael and Mark as a couple of South Carolina upland bird hunters and as a couple of guys that are doing great work to promote something that all of us love. So, without further ado, let's get into today's conversation and welcome to the Project Upland podcast of the South Carolina Bob White Initiative, Michael Hook and Mark Coleman. All right, Mark and Michael, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. How are you guys doing today?
1: We're great, Nick. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, doing
2: well.
0: My pleasure to have you guys on. I'm really excited to talk about the South Carolina Bob White Initiative, which is why we had you guys on today. But first, we got two of you on the call. We got two guests on the podcast. Let's introduce you guys to the listeners of the Project Upland podcast. Mark, why don't we start with you kind of as we, as we always do, put us on the map. Let us know where we're speaking to you from, kind of where you call home, and what brings you on the podcast today.
1: Nick, we're actually calling you from Michael's office here in Columbia, South Carolina at the headquarters of the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. I live about an hour and a half northwest of here in Spartanburg, and I'm passing through um, today on the way down to Charleston for the Southeastern Wildlife Expo, where we're going to have a booth this weekend. And I am, uh, I'm an avid Bob White hunter. I'm a volunteer with the initiative, and I serve on the Outreach Committee.
2: Excellent. And Michael? Yeah, I'm, I'm joining Mark right here in my office, uh, where I spend most of my days, unfortunately. Like I say, I, I don't get out in the field as much as I'd like, but, but this is home sweet home to me. Um, I grew up right here in, close to Columbia. Um, I, I'm an avid hunter around here as well. Um, I've worked for the small game program for four years now, Um, been with the department for about 18, uh, done various jobs throughout the state. Um, But like I say, work with a small game program, our big focus is quail and doves. We also work with squirrels and uh, rabbits, woodcock, grouse, uh, the few grouse that we have. but, But that's usually what I'm doing is quail and doves.
0: Good stuff, and admittedly, Michael, you don't get out into the field as much as you like. But just prior to me hitting the record button, you told me that you were out in the field, not during the day, but at night. So you were uh, you were done with your office job. What were you doing out in the field uh, earlier this week?
2: Well, we were we were helping some folks that I believe you may may know. Um, I think so, Eric. Bl- yeah, Eric Blumberg and um, the Eastern. Woodcock Migration Cooperative. We we were doing a little bit of trapping down at a, a place in Hampton County, uh, which is down along the coastal plain in South Carolina, at a at, at a DNR property called the Web Center. We were trapping some woodcock. We got three males and nine females uh, with GPS locators on them, and hopefully we'll be seeing some movement shortly.
0: Awesome, and uh, I think I think Eric and I Eric may have mentioned uh, sort of the methods that we that you guys use to trap these woodcock, but walk me through it a little bit because it's, you know, I always hear the term mist netting, but I'll be honest with you. I haven't done that and I'm not really familiar with it. And I know you used another method too. How how do you actually go about, you know, trapping, putting a transmitter on a woodcock and then releasing it?
2: Sure. So the, the mist nets are, are a pretty large nets. I uh, just, you know, picture a big fishing seine, except for it's, it's made of pretty fine filament. They're, they're easily damaged, and um, like I say, but just large nets, you spread them out between poles and, and you you place them in advantageous spots. You know, for example, down here when we were trapping, we were in a big open field system uh, that had a fair amount of growth. There were some deer stands on the edge. They had uh, some moat areas for shooting lanes in these these fields and and we strategically stretched these. Nets across those shooting lanes and lo and behold, the woodcock were using them and we caught a few of them that way. Um, it's sort of a passive way of, of catching them. Like I so you go out, set them for about an hour or so and then go back and check them and, and see what you got. Uh, and the other way is a little more active. Um, you're riding around at dark, in the dark uh, with spotlights, catching them with dip nets. Um, it's, it's still challenging um, and... Alex had not been working in the system like we have in these open pine forests that we have and where the, the woodcock are, are hanging out are, are pretty thick areas. It's lots of broom straw, lots of uh, sweet gum patches, that type stuff. Um, but what we found out was they were much easier to catch in the uh, burned areas. We had recently burned a couple hundred acre tracks uh, throughout the property, and and the birds were in there using them. Made it much easier to see them and much easier to trap them.
0: And I know burning is something that uh, burn and, and prescribed burns is something that we'll come back to later in this podcast. But before we do that, I promise we won't talk about woodcock all day. But one question <laughs> that uh, one question that I see a lot and I probably wonder myself, people often ask how far south do woodcock migrate? And then how far I guess how far south do they nest? And I was curious. Do you have a handle or did Alex have any thoughts on, do you, have, do you have resident birds in South Carolina or are they basically migrators that are resting there and they're pretty much all going to fly north so you won't have them there in the spring?
2: To be honest with you, I'm not sure. Um, you know, Every year I'll get one or two pictures from quail hunters because like I say our quail season runs to in February and inevitably I'll get a picture or two of a, of a woodcock nest. Um, I don't know what that means. You know, up until now, we didn't have the technology to follow some of these birds. So I just took it for what it was, was hunters finding a a few woodcock nests here and there. You know, I don't know how common it is. There's a lot of unknowns to it. So, you know, does it happen? Sure. Does it happen a lot? I don't think so. But but well, we're gonna hopefully
0: find out. Right, right, yeah, and I suppose that's that's a really, really good reason for Eric and Alex and you guys to all be working on this project, and that's cool that the uh, the Eastern. Woodcock Migration Project will hopefully tell us some of that stuff, which is awesome. So, Mark and and Michael, we were chatting a little bit before, and and I, uh, you know, much to my dismay. No, I, I guess I'm I'm kind of kidding, but I found out that you guys are still lucky enough that uh, hunting season still open. So, tell me about uh, South Carolina hunting season. What's still going on, and are you still getting out there chasing birds? Still
1: getting out there chasing birds. It runs till March first. Is that right, Michael? So, uh, we still got a few weeks left in the season. Uh, it usually opens. The Monday before Thanksgiving down here, so we get a pretty good season, uh, season length. And my experience, I'll let Michael chime in about his my experience and some of the guys I'm running into out in the field is that this has been one of the better Bob White seasons we've had in a while. We're we're seeing more birds in more places, and uh,
2: it's kind of an indicator
1: that, that some of the work we're doing is, is really starting to pay off.
2: Yeah, I, and I'd echo those thoughts. You know, my personally, my season's been better than last, but. Mark will probably agree with me. Last year was unfavorable in a lot of ways, just due to the weather. I mean, there were so many weeks that it was hot, 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 and it it turned your your thoughts from Bob Whites to fishing, and the the dogs were miserable. And like I say, it just it was not conducive. So you know, like I say, it was it's it's much better seasonably. We've had good wet weather. Um, like I say, I, it's it's been a definitely a better season for sure.
0: From from an outsider, you know, I've never hunted bobwhite quail. I've never had the fortune to to hunt down in that region. I, I certainly would love to someday, but I I pick up enough in reading and seeing things that you know the bobwhite quail, like many upland game birds, has sort of seen uh sort of the golden days period, and we're not in that right now. So I'd be curious if you guys, if, if you got enough history in that region could you talk about sort of the story of the bob white quail and where where it is today is really what i want to get at you know what what was it like in the past and if you had seen things differently when you were younger and and how it's different today you know have you seen things change before your eyes and and you know we've got some positive things that i think we're going to get into later in this podcast but talk about where things are at today from a historical perspective
1: historically bob bob white Quail hunting in South Carolina goes back uh, many decades, and when you get when you go back to maybe the fifties and the sixties, bobwhite hunting in South Carolina was then what a lot of people associate with it now. Maybe in South Texas or, or South Georgia, um, there were a lot of a lot of bobwhites on the landscape just because land use was different then. Not uncommon for people to go out and find fifteen or twenty cubbies in a day, like you can at some of these well managed places in, in Texas and in Georgia now. Um, and I
2: guess Michael was, it, you know, maybe late sixties, early seventies. They started. That was when the decline kind of started. Yeah, and a lot of it depends on who you're talking to. But sure, yeah, a lot of the hunters that hunted in the fifties and sixties by the eighties, it gave up. And those of us that came along a little later, the eighties were our heyday, yeah. or, or even in my case, the nineties was my heyday. Right. So. But yeah, I, you know, it really started in the probably the '70s or so.
1: And yeah, um, Nick, there's an interesting, uh, an interesting book that just came out uh, last year. A guy up uh, in Gastonia, North Carolina, wrote it. Named Richard Rankin, uh, and it's kind of a kind of a history of South Carolina quail hunting through his eyes and and growing up um, hunting wild birds in the lower part of the state on some land that their family had. It's called Wilder- When There Were Still Wild Birds, I believe is the title. Um, and it, it tells a real interesting story about how uh, in some of those places down there, you know people would come down from the north to hunt here. It was a destination back in those days. Um, and then it, it kind of follows it through some of the decline and uh, and when they eventually just kind of quit hunting the property and sold it or gave up the lease on it. Um, so it's you know, it used to be a, a huge sport here. There are still guys around who can remember those days when it you know they could just, you know, take off work early and go find a dozen cubbies in the afternoon. And that's, uh, you know, that's kind of what we're hoping to get back to. We may never get back to those kinds of numbers on a daily basis, but uh, certainly want to want to get Bob White's back on the landscape in a, on a broader basis than they are today.
0: The title of that b- book certainly makes a statement, you know, when there are wild birds, it, I think it's, you can kind of read into that to get a sense of of where things are at today so that it kind of leads us to our our conversation today so i think with that we should jump into the South Carolina Bob White initiative and i think it would be great to start with you know let's let's just get a brief history on on the initiative talk about the things that led to the creation of the Bob White initiative and then bring us up to speed on on where you're at today
2: so really, the the South Carolina Bobwhite Initiative is a, a response to the uh, work of the National Bobwhite Conservation Initiative, and and that that project really got started back in 1995 by it was started by one of my predecessors, Brett Carmichael. Um, there there was he called together a meeting of, of a group of, of states and, you know, different agencies whatnot of, of folks that were seeing the quail decline and going, you know, you know, guys, we need to do something, but, but nobody knew what to do. You know, um, folks had tried all kind of various means to, to rehash quail populations, you know, trying to rebound them. Um, they, like I said, they met in 95 created this group, the Southeast quail study group. Um, they kept adding partners. Eventually, it became the Northern Bobwhite Conservation Initiative. Eventually, it reached to all twenty-five states of the uh, the Whites Range. They changed it to National Bobwhite Conservation Initiative. And in twenty or two thousand two, they created a plan, sort of to get more bobwhites on the, on the ground. Um, almost immediately after they started implementing that plan, they started up working on. 2.0 um so in 2012 they finished up mbci 2.0 and created the um it was it was probably five i think that the number they say is 500 different biologists that that had their hands on this project created the uh, coordinated implementation plan and and it's basically trying to get more quail habitat on the on the landscape at a at a landscape level from there, they allowed the states to get involved as they saw fit. Um, so, South Carolina's response was to create the South Carolina Quail Council, and that's just a group of of anybody that had anything to do with quail in South Carolina. Um, you know, it's obviously DNR and, and the uh, chairman of the Quail Council is, is our director, um, but it involves. Clips and Extension, South Carolina Forestry Commission, National Wild Turkey Federation, Quail Forever, uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service, Farm Service Agency, like I said, Tall Timbers, um
1: Forest Service,
2: yes, Forest Service. US Forest Service, um, National Fish and Wildlife Service. Yeah, about 25,
1: 27 organizations I think Quail Forever is is one of the members of Audubon, so we have some uh, some NGOs involved in it. Yeah. Um gee. Anybody who could conceivably bring something to the table to help restore the Bob White populations, uh, and, and everybody is bringing something to the
2: table, and is that there's just tremendous power
1: in a partnership like that.
2: And that's that's what's made it successful. Is, is like I really believe if we would not have all those folks together, just talking about it, we would not have been as successful as we have been. Um, it's a, it's afforded us some things that that I didn't. Think was possible, really? I mean, who would have thought we'd ever have a, a quail focal area on a on a Forest Service property? It, that was the first in the nation. Um, same thing for quail focal area on the Fish and Wildlife Service property here in in the state. I you know, it's afforded some things that I just like I said wouldn't have believed otherwise. But so like I say, the the Bob White Initiative was born out of the the Quail Council and. It's been,
1: it was about four years ago in December, I think, we had the first meeting of the, the Quail Council, and at that first meeting, I was amazed. There were 50, some, maybe 70 people there, and a lot of people representing these different organizations, and every single person I talked to that night was so excited that we were doing something coordinated um, and, and bringing this many people to the table at so many people said, you know, we've been wanting to do something like this for a while. We just didn't know what to do. We didn't know how to do it on our own. So it, it really, people really jumped in when uh, when this was pulled together.
2: And, and most of them it, it, it help out in some manner. Um, there's several technical committees. Well, there's a technical committee that does, like, the boots on the ground, focal area work. There's a communications committee. Um, there's a prescribed fire committee. So like I say, most of these folks are helping out in some manner and they, they, they're getting their hands dirty and putting Bob White habitat on the ground. So like I say it it's been a it's been a pleasure to work with everyone for sure.
0: Well it absolutely sounds like you guys are you're doing really good work and you're getting work done, which is obviously the important part of a, a big partnership like this. I feel like we see that very often. A lot of the most successful conservation ventures are, are partnerships like this. So that's, that's pretty cool to see. And I got to imagine it's, it's fun to be a part of it and just seeing all these people come together and work on it. Michael or Mark, I guess, tell me about, I want, what I, what I ultimately want to get to is what, what does the work look like to put more Bob whites on the landscape? But to start with that, what is missing where there are not Bob whites today that there once was or once were What is missing or what has changed about that landscape? And then we'll get to how you change that.
2: In a word, it's simply habitat. You know, everyone, everybody wants to blame something. Everybody thinks there's some silver bullet to it. You know, you hear, well, it's the fire ants, it's the coyotes, you know, it's, it's a whole host of stuff. Well, that may be part of it, but really it just comes down to habitat, you know the heyday of bobwhites here in South Carolina was created by a byproduct of, of the farming practices and timber practices that were employed at the time. You know, they were creating bobwhite habitat on the side and, and, like I said, the birds flourished. Um, as those items have changed over the years, they've gotten cleaner, they're more efficient, the habitat has suffered, and, and like I say, it's just not available for the bobwhites. So places that manage for bobwhites they they do really well in South Carolina. I mean, there's there's properties that, that they'll astound you. They've got you know just phenomenal numbers and and some fantastic hunting. But but they're trying to create good bobwhite habitat, you know, and and they're successful. In, and the good news is, it's not hard to create bobwhite habitat. More often than not, it's it's letting stuff go, creating a mess. I mean, you know, all this stuff was was like I said, a byproduct back in the old days, and we have to work hard to create that mess these days. So. You know, it's it's like I say, it's it, it's education on on the fact that it's habitat, and and for so long everybody would try to do a little bit of work here, a little bit of work there. It was sort of a shotgun approach to bobwhite management. And We've realized over the years, especially through the MBCI, that, that it's going to take a landscape level change. So that's where these focal areas come into play. You know, we concentrate on a certain geographic area, and we want to change the habitat at like I say at that landscape level um it's not necessarily just your property it's your property your neighbor's properties your neighbor's neighbor's properties and the good news there again is it doesn't take a lot on each piece of land it's just a, a tiny sliver that the bob whites will utilize but like i say it's just got to be there for them to be there so in a world going back to it in a word it, it's it all comes back to habitat
0: yeah. and how often do we hear that with upland birds and, and habitat i mean it's it never been clearer to me and I, and hopefully the listeners, I mean, habitat is so critically important to upland birds. They, they need it. And it's interesting, you know, you kind of painted the picture for quail, but I could, you could draw a lot of similarities mm-hmm. to a picture for rough grouse or for Hungarian partridge, other birds where, you know, certain landscape level changes that were, you know, man-made industries that, that altered the habitat made it, great for one particular species and then those those industries change or develop and and the practices aren't the same and it's not as good for birds and then you guys have to come in and, and figure out what that was what was what were the causes and then how do we how do we work with all these people private landowners public agencies to to try to put this habitat back
2: sure no absolutely and you hit the nail on the head i mean we have the same problem in our grouse woods you know we're on the very southern end of their range, and we got a tiny sliver of, of the state that's, that's decent grouse habitat, but due to the lack of, of, of the timber industry up in the mountains, you know, lack of fire, their habitat suffered, and their, the birds are suffering. So it's, it's very similar to quail in that manner. So. And, it, and it's not just limited to bird, I mean, game birds. I mean, loggerhead shrike, northern, um, well, Bachman sparrow, field sparrow, uh, Eastern Meadowlark, they you can lay their population graphs right on the bobwhite's, and it's almost identical. It's like say they use those same habitats. Their numbers are suffering just like bobwhite. So, I mean, flatwoods salamanders, fox squirrels, it's it's a whole host of species that use these habitats that are suffering.
0: Yeah, let's let's put a little bit of context to this. Maybe I may have jumped ahead, but I, I want to talk about the the whistle counts and the covey counts. Michael, could you talk a little bit about how that process works? And then, you know, what was a, I guess, how how far have the studies been going back? And then what did a count 30 years ago look like compared to today? Like, kind of show us where we are on that spectrum.
2: So, our whistle counts are our longest running survey. Um, They started back in 1979. Um, and, And basically, the way they're run is we've got, Specific routes across the state, Um, we try to have several in each county, and um, they're they're 12-mile routes. Biologists will run them, stop every half mile, and um, listen for eight minutes, count the number of bob whistling, and and we total them up and and get a pretty good indication of of whistling males that are out on the landscape. Um, In the early days, those numbers – We were, we were, we were hearing a bunch of birds. Um, We were averaging 33, 35 whistling males a route. Um, You know, now, nowadays we're, we're down to six or so per route. Um, and, And that's an improvement over the last four years where we were down to maybe even three or so. And these, like I said, these aren't necessarily areas that we're managing for bioblikes. These are just advantageous county roads. And so you can really sort of, you know, I know a lot of our biologists, they can almost guesstimate before they hit the route, you know, what condition the birds are going to be in. Because they've watched over the years changes in forestry, changes in agriculture, um places that used to be farms or are, are now horse farms or or homes or or timber stands, pretty industrial timber. Uh, so like I say, you know, you can you can see the changes on the routes just visually, much less on the data sheets that I get back. So it's certainly changed over the years. But in the last couple of years, we've seen a, an increase in birds whistling. And, you know, that part of that's what we're doing. Um, part of that's just the natural timber cycle. There was a bunch of timber planted in the mid-90s. And, and that's coming to an age where it's either being first thin, second thin, uh, clear-cut, and it is creating more bobwhite habitat on the ground. So, like I say, we, we've seen a slight increase over the last couple of years, but we're still way below historical averages. But but we're heading in the right direction. Um, like I say, we've, we've been doing this survey since 1979, and this past year was the first year we've ever had three years in a row of an increase. So even though we're near the bottom, I'll take those three years of increase any day.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that does provide the context and the perspective that I was looking for. So, you know, drastically reduced from that 33 whistles per route down to about maybe six. But the real story, the recent story is that you've been seeing an increase the last three years, which is obviously good news for quail hunters and good news for upland bird enthusiasts. That, that leads me into the covey counts. Um, you also do covey counts in, in the fall i would imagine um talk about how that works into your you know your population studies
2: yeah so the covey counts are relatively new speaking um we've only been doing those for 10 or 12 years and they're done in october and like I say our season opens up in in november so we try to get them completed the end of october or early november um and and Basically, it's a group of biologists going out to a particular property. It's it's much more labor intensive. Like I say, it's it's taken a good many folks early morning going out and listening for the cubby call. Um, and and for those that aren't familiar with, it, you know, everybody recognizes the spring Bob White's call, the one that, that sounds like Bob White, you know. But the cubby call is a much more demanding. Of they call it a coy lee call, and you know, if if you weren't specifically listening for it, you would just think it was just another sparrow or what have you. I, you know, it takes some a little bit of training to recognize it, but but it's easy to do and, you know, a lot of our deer hunters have learned it over the years and they can they can pick up on them in the deer stand and they'll say, Hey, you know, I heard a covey or so, you know, in the deer stand or what have you but um that survey is, is generally more indicative of what you've got going into into your hunting season. So I, I you know you can put a lot of value into that. If if you're hearing birds in October, you're gonna have them available for for the uh the hunting season most likely. So it's it's a pretty good indicator that in that way. Um and those because they're so labor intensive, we 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 can only do a limited amount of them. And so we, we're concentrating on our focal areas, on some of our more managed areas and, and those provide a little more positive numbers. Um you know, where we're actively managing for birds, generally we've got more birds, you know. So, and in the case of these focal areas, you know, we started these focal areas three years ago, and as we've implemented habitat, it's been so cool to see the numbers go from zero cubbies, uh, you know, for example, on the Indian Creek focal area, we've had a 500% increase in, in our fall counts. Um, You know, it's cool to see it on paper. It's cool to hear the the folks using the land, hey, I'm seeing and hearing more birds. I'm I'm finding some some birds out here. So, like I say, it, that's the that's probably the more rewarding uh, survey that we do.
1: Hey, Nick, um, you, I think you've heard uh, Michael a couple times use the, the term focal area, and just just a kind of quick background on that. These are areas we have four of them in the state, and they're areas of public land. And this was kind of where, when the initiative got started, we said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna locate these places around the state, and we're gonna start doing work on this property because these all these agencies and partners in the initiative have access to it, have control over it, and and it's it's available to the public to use. So uh, people can come out and hunt this land. Um, but the idea was that we're gonna get the habitat work going here, and kind of in each of these focal regions." We have four focal regions, and there's a focal area in each region. And the idea is that the work will kind of spread from that, kind of a hub and spoke model. Maybe uh, the work will spread out from those focal areas, and you'll end up with a kind of a network of good habitat in each of those each of those regions.
2: And the way we get that habitat on the ground is on the on the private side is like say, like Mark was saying. We hope to show them, hey, if you build this habitat, the birds will show up. And it gets folks excited. And so in these focal regions, we've also hired farm bill biologists. Um, these folks' mission is to, to help private landowners put habitat on the ground. They'll go out, provide technical assistance, write management plans, give them some ideas. They're also skilled in navigating the uh, the red tape of some of these federal cost share programs. They can help them find the money that's available. Because, like I say, there's a good bit of money for for Bob White's, good bit of money for pollinators, good bit of money for long leaf habitat, and it, and it's all good quail habitat. But it's a lot of folks don't know the money's there. A lot of folks don't know how to get at the money. But that's like I said, that's what these farm bill biologists are there to do. And and we have a couple different types of farm bill biologists. We've got two that are half DNR, half NRCS. Um, they work out of an NRCS office. wear where DNR clothes. Um, We've got one that is a uh, – he, he's in in the world of her. He has three bosses. He's got DNR, Forest Service, and Quail Forever. Um, he's actually a Quail Forever employee, drives a DNR truck, and works out of a Forest Service office. Um, but like I say, his mission is the same, helping folks get good public or private land habitat on the ground.
0: I'm glad you brought up the Farm Bill biologist, Michael, because that is something – that's something that I, I have seen and I hear of. And I you, you hit on on the really good points in that a lot of times a private landowner, they want the same thing that you and I want. They want the bobwhites there along with a bunch of other species, but sometimes they just don't know how to make that happen or they're just not even sure that there's options available. And these farm Bill biologists, you know, PF and, and uh, Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever have got a bunch of them. They, a lot of them are in partnership with NRCS, like you said. I mean, they're... Anytime I meet somebody that that owns land, I'm always kind of bugging them to contact their local farm bill biologists or NRCS biologists because oftentimes there's stuff that they can do and, and I think it gives the landowner a real sense of pride, you know, in in helping out well, the wildlife and I would imagine that's what you guys are seeing down there.
2: Absolutely and you know, when we go on site visits, I tell folks, look, don't just go by my technical expertise call your quail forever representative call your national wild turkey federation representative call your nrcs representative you know there's a ton of folks out there willing to give advice and i tell them that you know take a little bit from everyone and and come up with your own plan like i said there's there's a lot of free advice out there you just gotta gotta look for
1: it and that's that's one of the primary services that that the south carolina bob white initiative has brought in into the landscape is uh is helping people who want to see more bob whites on their property or want to return bob whites to their property kind of taking their hand and guiding them through the process and that's if somebody calls us and says you know i've got some land that's been in our family for a long time we used to have bob whites we don't anymore what can i do michael or, or one of these biologists will go out and walk around the property with them and see what they have they'll draw up a plan for them and all this is free of charge um and then they'll kinda of, kinda of look at what money might be available, cost share dollars uh might be available to help them out and, and like Michael said, they'll help them kinda of navigate that maze of paperwork and everything um to to get some of that money to do this work if if that's something they're interested in.
0: Mark, kind of along the lines of the focal areas that you pointed out, I, I want to almost step back a little bit and I'm speculating that those focal areas are public land, but I don't know that for a fact. What does the landscape look like as far as a private ownership and public ownership and specifically with respect to an upland hunter? If if you're an upland hunter and you're going to go hunt quail in South Carolina, Generally speaking, obviously, are you mainly hunting public land? Are you mainly hunting private land? Or is it a healthy mix of both? How does that work? And then sort of what does the landscape look like from that angle?
1: The focal areas themselves, those those primary four focal areas that uh, we mentioned earlier are on public land, but they are surrounded by private land in a lot of cases. Uh, And, you know, in terms of if somebody in South Carolina is going out to hunt Bob White's, are they hunting public or private land? I wouldn't know what the, the mix is, but you you got a healthy dose of both in there. Um, you know, a guy like me, I don't I don't own any private land um, other than where my house is and there are no bob Whites there. But so I hunt public land primarily. There's a lot of private land in the state and the bobwhite hunting on that private land varies just depending on the type of habitat on that land. So there's there are people who manage their private land very intensively for bob whites and they have good honorable populations there there are some that just you know they have a few cubbies here and there on their land uh and they you know people will go out and hunt that a little bit i don't know, michael do you have any idea what the breakdown is between public and private
2: no we've we've got about a million acres of uh public land in the in the state um obviously all of that is is not bob white habitat you know we're we're in the Eastern Forest, and like I said, we've got a, a a good stand of pines blanketing the state. Um, but yeah, like I said, we've there's there's a fair amount of, of public land available, and you know it, it's a wide variety of types of public land. Um, like I said, we've got a focal area on Forest Service land, and they're they're doing a lot of work uh, creating quail habitat. They're they're creating those open pine systems you know that you think about you know down in south Georgia, what have you the the big tower and pines with the the underbrush underneath um the ground cover the the grass um but like i say our forest service is doing a pretty good job there um we've got fish and wildlife service doing similar work they're in our focal area the carolina sandhills national wildlife refuge they're actually doing red cockaded woodpecker work which coincides nicely with the bobwhite work. It, you know, it dovetailed real nicely. They they come on as a partner. Like I said, they're creating quail habitat as a byproduct of their their main goal, but it, it still works. Um, we've got a Forestry Commission piece of property in one of our focal areas. It's an interesting piece of property in the fact that it's 50% ag. Um, it's half ag, half industrial timber. And like I say, it's probably m- – what is a closer representation of what most landowner in South Carolina would own. Um, you know, it, it, it's a great demonstration area for us. So like I say, we, we tried to to cover the gamut when we were picking these focal areas, but you know, generally speaking, it, it, it can run the gamut from ag to, to grassland, to, to industrial timber, whether it's private land or public land. So,
1: but if, you know, if we really want to see Bob White, return to the landscape uh, in numbers that, were, that resemble maybe what we saw in the 80s or 90s, early 90s, it, it's going to rely heavily on, on private landowners jumping on board. And that's, uh, that's why so much of our effort is is getting the word out to these private landowners that we can help them and we can show them what to do. And We could convert a lot of public land in this state, but it still wouldn't touch the amount that's, that's really needed to, to bring back populations like we used
0: to have here well said mark and that's maybe that, that was a i could have asked a more direct question but that's ultimately what i was getting at is i wanted to get a sense of the makeup of private and public land and i was thinking that you would likely need the the help and support of private landowners to make these landscape level changes cuz that's something that michael talked about and i've heard that mentioned a lot when you're talking about wildlife conservation it's you know changing things at the landscape level it's great if somebody has a forty and they want to alter it and help the birds come back. And they may have some success with it, but in the long run, we need these landscape level changes. So I think that, that makes a ton of sense. And it sounds like that's what you need in South Carolina.
1: Yeah. And if that guy with his 40 and his neighbor with his 100 and his other neighbor with his 300 and the guy on the other side of the road with maybe 800 or a 1,000 acres, you know, they all start putting in habitat changes. Then, you, then that's when you're going to see something happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Michael, you talked about this a little bit in starting to talk about what quail habitat looks like, and you touched on the towering pines with the underbrush. That's for for, for me, an outsider. That's what I picture probably because it's what I've seen in magazines and I've seen on TV, uh, that, that classic, classic quail cover, you know, going along those lines. Is that what good quail cover looks like? And what else does good quail cover look like?
2: good quail cover looks like a big weedy mess. Um, (laughs) You know, everybody pictures those towering pines when they think about southern quail. But, you know, they can, like I said, there's a lot of ag land down here that they'll use the periphery of. um, Brushy, ditch banks, you know, overgrown, fallow fields. You know, that's all quail habitat. We talk a lot about quail need the rule of thirds. They need um, a third brood cover, a third nesting area, and a third escape cover. And and what that breaks down to is that that brood area is your forbs and legumes, those those broadleaf weed species. Um, and like I say, that's where they're taking their chicks to 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 feed in the spring. You know, they're they're they come out hungry and they're looking for protein and they're they need bugs. Um, that's that's where they're going. Those. Those forbs are, are what they're looking for um come follow it they they start looking for those seeds and and a lot of those forbs are producing those seeds as well um you know grass are certainly producing some seeds and they eat them and all but they're the grass is their nesting habitat. they're using a year old uh the grass the dead grass at the base of the these bunch grasses as nesting areas um they'll back into them create a little nest and and be pretty happy there um like, say, then you've got the escape cover, those blackberry brambles, Chickasaw plum patches, you know, hard woody cover, even much maligned sweet gum patches. You know, in the southeast, we have terrible problems with sweet gums, but like so many things, in moderation, and you know, it can prove, prove to be pretty decent escape cover, as much as I hate to admit it, but um, I still do everything I can to get rid of my sweet gums. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, so like I say, that it's you really need that mix of those three things, and, and whatever form it takes, so be it. You know, like I said, everybody pictures those pines, but but the quail don't need those pines. That's you know, that's sort of aesthetics to a lot of folks. Um, some folks need the timber there to provide money, just to have the property. Um, you know, same thing with farming. You know. More often than not, these folks that have bob lights, they're, they're more interested in the money that's coming from ag or timber, but the bob lights are nice. Um, so, like I say there's, there's a balance there for a lot of folks, you know, these private individuals that come to me. They have to balance it. Um, there's a couple that can go whole hog bob light and say, I don't care about anything else but bob light, but more often than not, you're having to balance, whether it's agriculture, cattle, or timber, or what have you, so... Bobwhite habitat in the southeast can look like a lot of different things, but but generally speaking, it's just that tall bunch grasses and and weedy forbs and and some some hard cover here and there.
1: Yeah, and I um I want to throw this in. Uh, when Michael was talking about grasses, he mentioned it just now, bunch grasses, but he's not talking about fescue or Bermuda or. You know, any, any of these things that a lot of people have in their yards, it, it, it takes the native grasses, and Michael can talk to that uh, better than I can being a biologist.
2: Yeah, like I said, they're, they're bunch grasses. They act just like they sound. They grow in clumps. Um, and another component that's important to the bobwhites and, and what my, Mark is talking about is the reason those bunch grasses are more beneficial than the, the sod-forming grasses is put yourself in the size of a bumblebee-sized quail chick. It's tough to navigate those, you know, sod forming grasses. Those bunch grasses create sort of a highway of of bare ground underneath them. You know, to and fro between those bunches and it's like I say it's it's perfect habitat for them. They got cover above in those long waving grasses but but underneath it's it's bare ground for them. So, yeah, like I say it can be, you know, broom shreds, sweet grass or um switchgrass, Indian grass, Eastern Gamma grass, all that type. Much grass is, is perfect quail habitat.
0: Excellent. And you know, I think I think Mark and I were talking about this about a week ago. The recently Project Upland put out a, a our first the first quail video called Fight Back and that was based on Missouri. But there was some some information in that film that talked about I don't know if they specifically I have to watch it again, I don't know if they specifically compared Trying to support Bob White Quail with the use of food plots and other methods, and it seemed like they were finding that this restoration of native prairie and native grasses was helping the quail a lot more. is that now obviously when you have private landowners involved, like you said Michael there's a balance that we have to find, and everybody is certainly they're going to have their own motivations for owning their own private land, but if we can find those areas where interests overlap. I mean, I think that's really one of the ultimate goals of of conservation. Can you speak to that as far as the native, the native grasses and the, and the native habitat and how you're able to put that back on the landscape, if at all?
2: So, yeah, you're right. Like say, you know, the, the native grasses and, and native forbs are, are, are more beneficial to bob whites than say, for example, a food plot or what have you. Um, you know, it's like I was mentioning with the the grasses. You know, the the structure of it provides cover. Um, you know, it, it obviously provides food. It's 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 nesting habitat. You know, you might not get that from all your different food plots. Um, these these natives are are here for a reason. You know, they're they're adapted to these conditions that we we have in the southeast they are you know tremendously tolerant of drought they can withstand the fires that we used to have um you know they're 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 built to be here and, and the birds are used to them they use them a lot they're designed to be together so yeah you know and as far as getting them on the on the landscape you know more and more i'm hearing about folks converting for example their fescue fields to native warm season grasses you know for for pasture land is are there concessions to that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, is it a perfect system to to do? No, but if you're interested in having bob whites and cattle on your property, is it a good way to mix the two? Sure. Um, you know you'll obviously be giving up something on both fronts, but but it's a good good balance. Um, you know in ag systems, can you afford to give up you know, the shady edge of your field, you know, maybe not plant that, let it go fallow. You know, you're talking about three, five percent of your field. You know, is that a concession you can make for bob whites to have bob white habitat on your property? Sure. You know, a lot of people can find that. Um
1: in some cases they can get paid for it through some of these programs. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, a lot of folks I hear they they'll um they'll call and say, Michael, I, I don't want to hunt the bobwhites. I just want to hear them like I used to back in the day. And, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll go out and I've, I've told folks, I'll, I'll go to the ladies auxiliary if they want to hear me talk about bobwhites. You know, I'm not here just for hunters and, and, um, uh, conservation minded folks. Like I said, I'm here for everybody, but you know, if, if the common landowner or whoever that might be wants to put bobwhite habitat on the ground, I'll go talk to them. And, and there's usually somebody that can do something, um, like I say, it doesn't take a lot. A lot of times, it's just letting things grow naturally. So, like I say, you can really affect the the area by by letting a few few weeds grow.
0: Yeah, and for those people that aren't necessarily interested in hunting bob whites, those are still people that we need you know, we need their help oh, in in the sense, you know, Mark touched on it. And it's when you connect those, when you connect those, those different pieces of land, the forties, the eighties, the thousands, you know, just to, because there's somebody in the middle that doesn't want to hunt, that doesn't mean that they, they're not still an important piece of that wheel. And, and I know you guys both understand that.
1: Yeah,
0: definitely. All right. So as far as other methods, we talked about a few of them there, but we mentioned it at the beginning and, and you just mentioned it. A minute or two ago, Michael, but talk about fire. Talk about a little bit about the history of fire, how it used to transform the landscape, how it no longer does today, uh, and then how how you're using it as a tool to, to get some of the benefits out of prescribed burns.
2: Sure. So fire has been on the landscape in the southeast forever. Um, whether it was man-made fire or lightning strike fires or what have you it's this area is a fire dependent system um you know many of our plant species are fire dependent many of our animal species are fire dependent They, they require certain needs from from these areas created by this habitat by fire um you know and even in the not so distant past you know folks use fire a lot more than they do now you know in the early part of the 1900s they were they were still cleaning their woods with fire you know it was it was common practice just to burn the woods get rid of bugs you know litter debris what have you that was that was their means you know people had swept sand yards their houses were protected they'd like the, the woods on fire and and you know they were doing it for for their own purpose but they were creating bobwhite habitat they didn't you know it wasn't wasn't much thought about the Bob Whites at the time, but but that's what they were doing. And you know, over time, that's we've grown out of that culture a little bit. Um, it's become increasingly harder to burn. Um, smoke management is a, is a big issue, um, as you can imagine. You get interstates crisscrossing the state. You know, cities popping up here and there. Um, influx of folks from from other places, other than southeast, that aren't used to seeing the smoke. You know, because about it's about this time, January, February, folks start burning around here, and you'll see plumes of smoke as you're driving around. You may, may have a little impact from it. You may smell smoke in the, in the cities and all. And it's like I say it's it's folks doing some prescribed fire, and you know, like I say it's it's creating habitat. It's it's an easy and it's it's probably the cheapest way to create this habitat. I mean, because you can get some of the other desired effects of fire through mechanical means. I mean, you can do it with mastication units. Um, You can do it a little bit with herbicide. You know, there's other means, but fire is the cheapest and and probably easiest tool to use. Um,
1: And I think, Nick, a lot of people, you know, certainly over the last 30 or 40 years, maybe no coincidence, um, a lot of people have grown scared of fire. You know, they see it on the news all the time. You, You know, you have uh, subdivisions burning up in California and, you know, half the state of Montana is consumed by fire uh, and, and they see it as something to be afraid of. And that's, you know, that's another part of what we're doing with the initiative is is teaching people how to burn their property safely. In some cases, you know, we have, have folks who can go out and do it for them. In other cases, you know, we put on seminars and teach them how to do it themselves and, and give them that comfort level so that, so that they can get on a regular burn cycle on their land and uh and keep it in
2: good habitat and fire was an important enough piece of this puzzle that like say the the quail council created the prescribed fire technical committee i right? like say there, it it's a huge part of of quail in the southeast so, i mean they call it the firebird so yeah. you know it's it's got a pretty direct association with fire so like say it's a huge component
0: hand in hand i like it yeah All right, guys. So South Carolina Bob White Initiative is doing well. You guys are doing great work. You've seen the last three years, positive increases in the whistle counts. I mean, that's got to feel good, obviously. As you look ahead, what are the biggest challenges that you see for the South Carolina Bob White Initiative and everybody else involved to continuing this positive trend and creating more Bob White Habitat?
1: Well, that's that's a good question. That's um, I think at this point, what we're looking for is uh, is a way to kind of hit a critical mass of people who are interested in this and who are making the changes on their property. Um, I think once you I'm not really sure what that critical mass is yet, but I think once you hit it, um, the momentum from it will will kind of carry it from there. But that's, that's the challenge that I see uh, is getting enough people interested that, that they're willing to go out and make the changes on their property or, you know, maybe, maybe it's property that they don't own, but they have a hunting lease on it and getting those folks to go out and, and start building the right habitat, restoring the right habitat. I, th- I think that's uh, one of our bigger challenges now, Michael, you got any thoughts on
2: Yeah. Along with getting habitat on the ground, you know, I would say getting folks interested in bobwhites and bobwhite hunting. I mean, I, you know, We've we've got a dedicated set of hunters that remember it from back in the day, and there seems to be sort of a lost generation in there. And then there's a generation that's coming in now that that's hunting, and they have a diff- completely different perspective than the, the generations of past. You know, the older hunters, you know, they they remember the good old days. They're they're out looking for for numbers of coveys, and the the hunters of today, I don't know, they're, they're a little bit different. They're they're okay with with finding a cubby or two a day um, they're, they're interested in seeing the dogs work, um, just being out. And, and if they find a cubby, that's, that's a great day for them. And, you know, getting more and more of those is, is going to be key to me. Um, Cause like I say, to keep, keep the interest on bobwhite, I, I think it's going to sort of have to fall on, on hunters a little bit. Um, otherwise they may just be forgotten. Um, you know, as, as fewer and fewer folks in neighborhoods hear the bob whites, I, I, I can see that the the folks calling that say, "Hey, I just want to hear them." Are going to start to dwindle. Um, like I said, I think it's going to be left up to these younger hunters to keep pushing this. Hey, we need some more more habitat for these bob whites. Where you know, I want to go hunt them. Where where can I go? Can can you create some more?
1: And you you guys are seeing this some, I'm sure, Nick, through uh, through what you're doing with Project Upland. There, there is a young young generation now who is getting into this uh, into this sport and a lot of these guys are doing it just because they and girls are doing it because they you know they like working with their dogs and and this is just kind of a means to get get out and be with their dogs and watch them do their thing uh, but it we're, we're seeing a, an increase in our state of these younger guys uh, who you know they might not have even had parents or grandparents who did this but they've gotten interested in it and, and it, you know, it's vital, Mike, Michael's right. It's, it's vital to have these younger guys coming along. They might not own land yet, but they're going to support what we're doing in every way they can. And the passion and enthusiasm in these younger guys is, is something that's really hard to top.
0: Yep. Definitely agree. And, you know, Michael touched on it. We, we all know, or we should know what advocates people that hunt can be for, for these bird species and for habitat. And, you know, that's a, that's a, it's a role that we all play and we shouldn't take it lightly because you know, we can, we can make change. And and like you said, Mark, the passion and the excitement, I mean, that's, that's what gets us excited at Project Upland when we put stuff out and we see that passion and that excitement. I mean, that is cool. And I'm, I was going to ask you guys, if you, if you were seeing that and feeling that a little bit, but it sounds like, sounds like you are, it sounds like it's, you know, we all can, we could talk about how, hunter numbers are, are on a downward trend and, and we all know all that, but it's what are we doing today to to try to reverse that trend? And, you know, I, I get the sense that if somebody came to you, Michael or Mark, and said, hey, I, I've never hunted bobwhite quail, but I want to go hunt bobwhite quail, it sounds like you could take them out. And it's, it's, it's not lost. It's, it's still there in South Carolina.
2: No, absolutely. And, and, and generally speaking, it's fairly accessible. I mean, there's not many places in the state I mean, we're a small state. Uh, you know, you, you don't have to go far to find suitable habitat. So, yeah, you can be out within thirty, forty five minutes of a place, and and have a pretty decent afternoon. So, yeah.
0: Well, we're about to wrap up here, guys, but I'll uh, I'll ask you for kind of some closing thoughts, uh, and, and each of you can respond. Mark, we talked in the beginning. Introduce yourself and and as a as a quail hunter in South Carolina. But what is it that that fuels your passion and uh, gets you excited about quail hunting and and upland bird hunting in general.
1: I have a, I have a couple of dogs and love to watch those dogs work. Uh, love to take them out in the field and walk around. And, and it's not a, you know, it's not a how many birds can I put in the bag thing. It's, it's great when you find birds. Uh, there's no question seeing the dog's point, having a shot at the bird, seeing the dog go and pick a bird up. That's a lot of fun. And there's you know, if, if you if every time you went out you didn't find anything, you, you'd still be missing something. Even if you had your dogs, um, so I think um, I think the dogs are, are one of the main reasons that I do it. Um, you know, beyond that, it's hard to explain. I guess why I prefer Bob White hunting or, or maybe woodcock hunting to something like duck hunting or dove hunting. And I love to do both of those. But if somebody said this is all you can do the rest of the season, it, it would it would be quail hunting, and it's just. Uh, just one of those things that some some people just have a preference for deer hunting some people have a preference for turkey hunting for me it's bob whites
0: yeah michael how about you
2: you know i think i can pinpoint the why why bob whites um for, at least for me you know you know obviously i, I enjoy watching the dog work and more often than not you know here in south carolina we got pretty favorable weather for for quail hunting and i mean it's it's nice it, it's you know, you get out, and it's a nice walk in the woods. It's peaceful. You get to talk with your buddies. I, you know, it's a lot of uh, of a social aspect, much more so than sitting in a deer stand, you know, quiet by yourself for hours on the end. You know, I, I enjoy the social aspect of it. But, you know, I, I certainly woodcock hunt when it's in season. But to me, the, the difference between quail and woodcock is, is the flush of that covey. <laughs> um, you know, it's just nothing like it. I, you know, when when you get twelve or fifteen, eighteen birds that all get up at once, right at your feet, it's it's pretty exciting. It's it, it's addictive. Um, you know, it's not a sound that you forget. And I, you know, I I don't know how to describe the sound, but it's
1: it's a rush, I mean, It really is. It's, you know, you're alive when that
2: happens. And it, you know, you just go from the perfect stillness of the dog just just locked up on point to just that that rush of wings. Explosion.
1: Weed. Yeah, it's it's amazing.
2: So to me, that's, you know, like I say, that's, that's what it is. Like I say, you know, like I said, I enjoy woodcock hunting. It's a lot of the same. I mean, we're in South Carolina, we're hunting a lot of the same areas. You know, it's, it's almost identical, but, but when that covey gets up versus the woodcock, like I say, it's, that's the difference to me.
0: Excellent. I love it guys. All right. For somebody listening they're uh, maybe they're down in that region they're in south carolina or they're just wanting to get into upland hunting in general but somebody listening that doesn't have a lot of experience they want to get out there what's what advice would you give them
2: give us a call like I say, i'm always up to talk birds and bird dogs um i, I can waste a, a lot of time in my day doing that <laughs> <You and laughs>
0: that's,
2: me both. that's much better than writing reports and, and scouring an excel sheets <laughs> so but yeah no like i say we you know, get in contact with us. We can put you in contact with folks around. Um, you know, like I said, there, there's, South Carolina's got a lot to offer hunting-wise, and, and we usually can, can find somebody that can help folks out, for sure.
0: All right, and lastly, South Carolina Bob White Initiative. People want to learn more. They want to help. They want to get involved. Where's the best place to go?
1: Uh, our, our Facebook page is, probably has the most updated information on a regular basis, so they can find us on Facebook. Um, we're on Instagram as well. Uh, our website is SC is in south carolina scbobwhites.org, and there's a lot of good background information on that website all of those have our phone number and I believe an email address maybe the exception of Instagram might not have an email address but there's a there's a way to get in touch if they want to learn more if they if they have property that they want to try to start doing some habitat work on uh, if they just want to talk about Bird hunting and bird dogs and whatever, you know, give us a call.
0: That's what we're here for. All right. Excellent. I'll do my best to gather all that stuff up and put links in the show notes so people can find that. That's all I got for you guys. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us on the Project Upland Podcast today. Thank you so much. I learned a lot and hopefully the listeners did too. I wish you guys the best of luck in your future endeavors. We'll keep in touch. Love to have you back on and chat more about this. Good luck at the show this weekend and thank you guys.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on, Nick.
0: Anytime. Take care. Take care. You've been listening to the Project Upland Podcast. As your host, Nick Larson, I'd like to thank you for tuning in each and every week. And I'd like to thank our partners on the Project Upland Podcast, bringing you each and every episode of the show. Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dog Truck Callers, Gordian Sons Outfitters, Yukonuba Premium Dog Food, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Remember, you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast post or send us some email. I'd love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email, northwoodscollective.com. Don't forget to head over to projectupland.com to see everything else we've been up to. Films, blogs, articles, gear reviews, and much, much more. Head over to projectupland.com. That's it for this week's episode of the Project Up and Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you on the next show.